There are strong arguments that character needs to take precedence over competency. What does God look for when He wants to install a leader? What does the Bible say we should look for in a leader? In the midst of our series on leadership, our Truth Encounter study leader Dave Wurtson turns to the issue of character. You talk about leadership, I think almost instantaneously you think in terms of political leadership. And in the United States today, you've been hearing over and over again that politics today in the United States, whether it be in Washington or whether it's in a courtroom, is a media event. But it's an incredible thing. You know, here we have the law court, and it's become a media event. I mean, a defense attorney not only needs to be a good lawyer, they also need to be a media person, like an actor. In fact, it just blends together. A prosecuting attorney needs to be a big headliner for a big Hollywood movie, probably even capturing more audience than probably any Hollywood movie that's presented. In other words, our whole country has become media-oriented. In fact, McEwen said that the media is the message. And our society is there. The media is the message. Think of politicians. I mean, how do you think Abe Lincoln, how do you think Abe Lincoln would do in today's media campaign? Abe Lincoln called himself the ugliest man that ever lived. You know, when we see him in the Washington Monument, it's like he's, he's immortalized and he's chiseled in stone. But Abe Lincoln, in actuality, called himself a man that, that people would, would make comments about how ugly he was. Now, how would Abe Lincoln do when he was grotesque in his physical appearance? What about Benjamin Franklin? How do you think Benjamin Franklin would do with a TV personality, with his bespeckled you know, glasses on his nose and big rotund guy? And maybe, I don't know what his voice sounded like, but I kind of have an idea that it was like this big squeaky voice. Benjamin Franklin, he might not have even have made it in today's media thing. You see, we think of leadership as involved being able to speak powerfully in public, being able to command a lot of media attention, and the media becomes the message. In fact, politicians, ever since Watergate, have been crying about the idea that your external ability to move people, your ability to govern, your ability to reach people with the masses is not related to your personal life. Watergate, for, for example, opened up an unlocked door. Journalists began to probe into the personal life of politicians. And now it's become just a, a, a daily routine. We find out everything that our politicians are doing. Interesting enough, the Word of God has been saying for over 2,000 years now that you cannot really divorce your media persona from your personal persona. One of the things that's gripping the public, as we've talked about the last few times that we've been discussing this question of leadership, this tremendous dichotomy between a media image and what's really going on in our life. What about you? I want to ask you a question. If you are being investigated by the FBI because you are being considered for a leadership position, for an, an executive position for the government, or maybe you're going to be joining the CIA, what would the FBI come up with in your life? What would they come up with about your reputation? What would they come up with about your personal habits? What's really going on in your life personally, and how is it affecting your public image? You see, the Bible is saying that those things are connected. And what I want you to think carefully about today, you see, it's easy for you to think that you represent yourself. It's easy for you to think that, you know, what's really going on here is I represent my own person, and I'm going to be my own person. But I want you to realize something today. Do you know what? Your unbelieving neighbor, 
the men and women that you work with, the kids that you go to school with, all the people around you are identifying you, not just with church, but they are identifying you with Christ. And what I want you to begin to think about is that every single one of you is either a magnet that by your way of life is pulling people to the Savior, drawing them to the Savior, or you could be a bulldozer that's keeping people away, moving people away. I want you to turn your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. The Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 3, the last time we were talking together, 1 Timothy 3 talks to us about spiritual leadership. And Paul talked to us about the fact that spiritual leadership isn't an exclusive thing. I talked to you last time that there are many careers that you can be excluded from. If you don't do well enough on the MedCat, you'll be excluded from medical school. If you don't do well enough on your pre-dental exam, you're not going to be able to go to dental school. If you don't pass your CPA exam, you're not going to be able to be a recognized accountant. There's all kinds of situations in life where you'll be blocked from a career. But the Apostle Paul begins 1 Timothy 3 by saying, if anyone... He doesn't exclude anyone. There's nobody in this room that can't go on and become a spiritual leader. And I think that's a great thing. Because this is one of the most important things that we need to become. It's not that important what career you follow necessarily. There's all different options for you. And your Heavenly Father will have something that especially fits you. But it's so vital to realize that the thing that our Heavenly Father wants the most for us the, the character and the personal integrity that he wants for us so that we will be recognized as being spiritually mature, a spiritual leader. None of you are excluded if anyone desires that office. We also talked the last time together about desire. We talked about the fact that it uses a word that's used for the desire to make money. And we talked about the fact that the same drive, the same ambition that often is used to make a buck The Lord wants you as one of his children to use that drive and that ambition to become a mature, Christ-like person in your character. If anyone desires, and then it says the office of an overseer, the office of a mature member of the body of Christ, we learn finally it's a noble thing. We've learned that it was a good objective. It's something that you should put out there. I want, as I grow older, to become someone who will be recognized by my brothers and sisters in the the family of God. By my brothers and sisters as being someone who is mature, who's growing, who has integrity in their walk with God. That is a holy ambition. And the world desperately needs it. One of the things I want you to think about is the fact that in in God's New Testament scripture, there are not the holy men. They're not the priests. They're not the rabbis. They're not the professional clergymen. In the Bible, you don't have that. You have you and you have me. And we're all together. And we're all representatives. We're all ambassadors. The issue is what kind of an ambassador are we going to be? The Apostle Paul, when he talks about leadership, he begins to, he, he lays out one overarching characteristic that must characterize all of those who are recognized as leaders in the body of Christ. Look at it in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2. Now the overseer, the one who's going to give oversight in God's family, the very first characteristic is he must be above reproach. This is such an important thing that the Apostle Paul uses this term. If you look down at verse 7, he uses this term of deacons as well. Look at verse 7. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the, into the devil's trap. Look at verse 8. Likewise, he must also, a deacon must be a man that's worthy of respect. 
I want you to look at those words. First of all, I want you to look at the words, he must be blameless. He must be above reproach. The word that's used there is a word that means there's nothing in his life that you can grab a hold of. As, as you do a CIA rep on this man, as the FBI investigates this person, as they unlock the doors of their life, when you open up the closet, there's no skeletons inside. Now, it doesn't mean that the person is perfect. None of us are perfect. But what it means is that what you see is what you get. And the person is open, they are direct, and they are a person that there's no secrets behind the closed door. They are a person that is blameless. You think of an Old Testament example of that. The book of Daniel presents a man that was not a preacher. Daniel was a business person. In fact, he was a political diplomat. It was like living in Washington, D.C., and Daniel was like head of the diplomatic corps for two world empires, the kingdom of Babylon and the kingdom of Persia. When the kingdom of Persia took over, Daniel was recognized for his skill and for his his administrative ability. He was made one of the top three rulers in the kingdom. His enemies, the fellow Persian princes, hated him for that. You see, he had some people, just like you'll face people at your work, who become jealous of your success. If you start to do well, if you're prospering, if God's hand is upon your life, there will be enemies around you that want to pull you down. If it's in the school system, there will be people that want to pull you down. If it's in business, there will be people that will want to deceive and lie and pull you down. It's the nature of being in the marketplace of life. Daniel had enemies like that. In fact, they came up with a plan. They began to do really careful investigation into his life. I mean, they looked at his financial records. They looked at his family. They looked at everything they could find out about Daniel. You know what they concluded? An incredible thing. Daniel was a blameless man. He was irreproachable. There was nothing in his life. No Watergate, under the, no Donna Rice under the covers, no illicit lovers. They just couldn't find anything on this guy. And that's what should be said of every one of us as born-again believers. As our enemies examine our life, they should not be able to find undercover secrets that are blocking us from having a good reputation. So what does enemies decide to do? They say, well, the only way we can get this guy is to do something about his relationship with God because that's the most consistent thing in his life. And that's where they came up with a plan to go to their king and and, and declare all prayers illegitimate except the prayers and petitions that are offered to Darius, the king of Persia. And that's how they got Daniel. You kids will remember in the story of Daniel in the lion's den, the only thing they could get on him was that Daniel continued to pray three times a day as he always did. And his enemies saw that that was his consistent behavior. They knew he would be a blameless man. And so they got him on one of the, one of the disciplines of his Christian life. He was a man that was irreproachable. The Lord Jesus himself, when his enemies attacked him, Jesus could turn to his enemies and say, which one of you convicts me of sin? Jesus was blameless. And the only way that we're going to be blameless, the only way that we're going to be above reproach is to be connected with our Savior on the vertical relationship. Because all of us in our own lives, the scripture says that all of us have sinned. There's not one of us that in our own performance can say that we're irreproachable. But what I want you to begin to see that in grace, once you accept Jesus into your life, you can become a person that has the life strength of Jesus pouring into your life. And you can begin to become a person that will be recognized by others as becoming, as being irreproachable, as being a person who
who's worthy of respect. You say, Dave, why is that so important? Because of what I just read in that verse. Look at verses 7 and 8. It says in verse, uh, we'll, look, we'll begin with verse 7. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders. A spiritual leader must be, first of all, irreproachable or blameless. He must also be someone which ha- who has a good reputation with outsiders. Why? So that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. In verse 6, it warns us against putting just a brand new believer into the position of church leadership, lest they become lifted up with, with pride, and therefore they fall into the same snare that the devil fell into himself, the snare of pride. And then he tells us that it's important for a spiritual leader to have a good reputation with those that are outside. I want you to stop and think, why would the Apostle Paul say that a spiritual leader needs to have a good reputation with those outside? Because our testimony, in fact, the literal translation here, we must have a good witness with those outside. What I want you to realize is from the biblical perspective, it's not really that important what we're doing right now. This is preparation time. This is a time when you're supposed to be holy. This is a time when you're supposed to be focused on God. But I want you to understand that the real witness, the real testimony is going to take place starting tomorrow morning in your office. And I want every single one of you to realize is that you hold the future of the witness of Christ and the, and the future of the witness of this church family in your hands. I want you to understand that. You see, I can preach like I'm preaching to you. And if you get up tomorrow morning and you walk into Eckert's Drugs, and as you walk into Eckert's Drugs, you meet somebody else from town, and you start gossiping. You start talking about the latest tidbit in town and and you start talking about how juicy it is and maybe there's a quarrel going on even among God's people. Or you start saying, man, you wouldn't believe what's going on in that. Man, I heard so and so and so and so and so and so. And you start gossiping. And an unbeliever is listening because they're all around us. You know what you just did? You just threw away years and years of the teaching of the word of God. Because that, that reality of the way you sound in a public place is a far more powerful sermon than anything I could ever do. What about my own life? We're playing basketball with our girls. Let's just imagine, I just did it yesterday afternoon, and I'm coaching our girls in basketball. Let's suppose right in the middle of the game, the ref makes a horrible call. I mean, just a horrendous call. I mean, he's so blind, he's so cross-eyed, he cries tears down his back. And I stand up, and I just cuss him right out. I say, blankety, blank, blank, blank. I mean, I just let go and just give it to him right in the face with about about ten strings of expletives. What's going to happen to the witness of our church? What's going to happen to the witness of our church? What do you think is going to happen in that gymnasium? You say, well, Dave, you're the preacher. You're supposed to talk a certain way. You're supposed to not lose your tongue. You're the preacher, not me. Except it is me. We're all in this together. You are the preachers. You are the ministers. Ministers are servants who represent Christ. Every one of you are that kind of a representative. You see, it's so important what we do. Here's another example. Let's suppose that our kids gather together on Wednesday night, but on Thursday night and on Friday night, they're just like all the other kids. I mean, they're just, they use the same kind of language. They cheat on exams. They're immoral just like any other kids. Then you know what happens? The preaching of everyday life by the normal everyday believer drowns out 
the preaching of God's servants. When I was selling books out in California, there was a youth group that I went to speak to one night. They had a gymnasium like this, and the gymnasium, without any chairs in it, was just jammed with kids. I mean, wall-to-wall kids, probably seven or 800 kids just jammed in that auditorium. I mean, it was a moving youth group. And man, they had, they had drums. It was, it was out in California. And man, it was progressive even way back there about 30 years ago. Man, they had an unbelievable ministry going. But Mary and I lived in that area. And we lived in one of the homes that, that had a son going to that youth group. You know what we found out? Those kids had a lot of public ministry. They had a lot of music. They had a lot of great preaching. But you know what? Almost every one of the kids that were at the core of that youth group were immoral. In fact, the guy that we lived with, the guy that we lived with went out all during the week, almost every night of the week, and had illicit relationships. Now, what kind of a witness do you think that that young people's group really had in their town and in their city? And that's why Paul, so you see, Paul is really honest. Paul knows where life is. You see, your reputation, what is your reputation? In your public marketplace, you are either a person who is known as being an authentic follower of Christ, and you become a magnet because of the way you talk. And I'm not saying that you will never slip. I slip. But as soon as you slip, you'll say, I'm sorry, I was inconsistent with my Christian walk. Your unbelieving friends will recognize that as, as integrity. If you're a boss and you're under incredible pressure and you just unload on your secretary, you just, re- just take her up down one side and down the other. I mean, you lose your temper. If you're a Christian, you'll later go and say, that was totally inconsistent with everything that I stand for. And I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? Forgive me for what I did to you. But forgive me also because I totally tore down when I'm trying to teach you about Christ. Unbelievers will respect that. The one thing they won't respect is if you are inconsistent in your everyday life. And you're not open and you're not honest. And what we need to pray, the reason this characteristic is so important is, is the reputation this week, the reputation of Jesus Christ in our society rests in your hands. You're going to scatter out all over this area. A lot of you fly all over the country. Some of you fly all over the world. And everywhere you go, you are either a magnet that's drawing people to the Savior. Or you're a bulldozer that's pushing them away. And it begins with, what's my reputation? What do people know me as? And I want every one of you to take seriously from the smallest child. You know, the book of Proverbs says that that even a small child is known by their deeds. Do you realize I could just share to you, like all the little kids that come to a one on Wednesday night, do you realize that every one of those little kids has a reputation? I can just ask their Awana leaders, what about so-and-so? They've already got a reputation. Because that's the way life is. All of us are known by our deeds. School teachers, don't classes have reputations? Yeah. Whole classes have reputations. It's just the way life is. I want to ask you, I want you to be really honest. And I'm being really honest with myself. What kind of a reputation do I have? You know, there's something awesome about reputations. Reputations take years to build. Reputations take a long time to build. But you know what? They can be torn down in just seconds of time. Irreparably hurt. But you know the neat thing about God's grace? Some of you are saying, well, Dave, that's really discouraging. Because my reputation hasn't been that good. In fact, I I just came to know the Lord. In fact, that's why I'm here today. Because I just received Christ a couple days ago or a week ago. And man, my reputation stinks. 
Man, this really makes me feel bad. What in the world could ever happen today? You know, I, I can never make it. Oh, yes, you can. Because in Christ, you can always have a reputation that begins to build for his glory. Think of Chuck Colson. I talked earlier about Watergate. What kind of a reputation did, did Charles Colson have when the Watergate thing just hit the whole big national press? Imagine having a reputation. He's the president's hatchet man. He's the politician that lies about opponents and slanders them so that his political leader can win elections. What kind of a reputation is that? The president's hatchet man. Now, what do you know Chuck Colson as today? Today, Chuck Colson is known as the founder of Prison Fellowship. Today, Chuck Colson is known as one of the major spokesmen for evangelicalism. Today, Chuck Colson is known as the guy that Ted Koppel will have on Nightline, and Ted will say that I respect this man as a man of integrity. You see what Christ can do? Christ can put broken reputations back together again, and he can cause you to become a witness. It's one of the most serious things. I want you to realize that you, as a group of believers, hold the key to whether or not the message of Christ will penetrate the marketplace. My voice is a voice in the night. My voice of teaching you the scripture becomes deaf and becomes silent unless you, this week, are, are ambassadors that pull people to the Savior. And that's what my I want you to know that the guts of my ministry... I don't really care that much about, about what we do on a Sunday morning and how many numbers that we have here. That's really not the issue. What I really care about is not the external things. What I care about is the internal impact that every one of us are having out there in the marketplace. And I view this as just prep time to get you ready for that and to help you to learn the principles you need to be able to really become authentic followers of Christ. You say, Dave, how do I do that? How do you start to build a good reputation? You say, all right, Dave, I'm going to try hard this week. I mean, I'm going to try to live consistently this week. And, and I'm going to try to control my tongue this week. And, and I'm going to try not to cheat this week. And on and on. The harder you try, the worse it'll get. The harder you try to perform for God, the worse it'll get. You know what you need to do? What you need to do is connect vertically. You need to be sure that you're connected vertically. Vertically, I got on email so that I could communicate with Jonathan. And, and Joel, the very first day I got on, Joel writes me back, well, mom and dad, welcome to the electronic age. It's about time you finally got with it, you know. And it's an amazing thing. You can just re- type in a message, and I just put a little code and over in Israel, just like that, and in just a few hours, Jonathan has a message and writes me back. It's an incredible thing. But you know, when I, when I, when I log in to, to the electronic mail, you dial a number, and then you wait. The buzzer goes off, you know, the ring goes off, and then you just sit there looking at your computer or do something else, and you hear this terrible noise, and then you hear, connect, connect. The information doesn't really come. All that information that's right there in the airwaves doesn't really come up on your screen until it says connect. And then you go through all this stuff with your name and your password and all that stuff, and then you got the information. As I look at that screen, I want to ask you this question. Have you connected? Have you been dialing the numbers this week so you're connected vertically? And has, is there the ring that you're connected with your God? Because if you're not, then your, your reputation is going to start to go the other way. And it could destroy you. It could destroy your family. And so the Apostle Paul begins to talk to us about some of the vertical connection that we need to have with God. He uses three words to describe this vertical connection that we need to have with God. You'll find it in Titus chapter 1, verse 8. Let's turn over there. Titus chapter 1, verse 8. Paul again is speaking to spiritual leaders. 
And he writes this. He says, rather he must be hospitable. And then he says this, and he talks about the vertical connection. We're going to be talking in future times together about some of the horizontal relationships like hospitality. But today I want to focus on the vertical connections that Paul describes that a man of God or a woman of God has with God. It says, first of all, he needs to be. The next one after hospitable is this. One who loves what is good. The second one is one who is upright. See the next the word after who is self-controlled. That's a horizontal relationship that we'll talk about. But I want you to get the next vertical one. One who is upright. And the third vertical connection is one who is holy. Now, there are three words I want you to really get implanted in your mind. Number one, I want to talk to you about what Paul means when he talks about one who's a lover of the good. Now, usually when we think of good, we think about something that is good for us. If I say that was good bluebell ice cream, what do I mean by that? It means that Dave Wurtzen likes the taste and it brings pleasure to his palate when he has that ice-cold frozen bluebell ice cream, his favorite, you know, and you could use Schwann's or something like that. It just, it just is so delightful. It's good for Dave. What I'm saying is that it brings pleasure to me. It's, an, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very tasteful thing to me. I enjoy it. That's what I mean by it is good. We usually use the word good in that way. We also use the word good in a moral context. That is a good rule to follow. What we mean is that it's a rule that produces well-being in our life. It's a rule that will produce good results and all that goes with that. So we use the word good of something that is conforming to a standard, that is accurate, that produces what is right in life. So we use good like that. The interesting thing is that most of us have the idea in our society is that good is what is good to me. And I want to warn you about that. Because every one of you have a fatal malady outside of Christ. What is good to you is bad. And what is bad to you is good. You see, every one of you, since Genesis chapter 3, and it's so important to understand this, since Genesis chapter 3, every one of you have an inbuilt sense of what is good. Now, Genesis started out like this, and I've often taught you this before, but I need to remind you again. Because the heartbeat of all evil is a misunderstanding about what is good. Genesis chapter 1 says, it is good, it is good, it is good. God creates a star, it is good. God creates the sea, it is good. God creates the, star, the, uh, the animals, it is good. God says all of his creation is good. God created Matt, Adam, it is good. The first not good that I've shared with you in the past is it is not good for man to be alone. And God immediately rectified it and he created a woman. So God says for man and woman to dwell together in a monogamous relationship of love, it is good. It is very good. So it's all good. Genesis 1 and 2 is all about goodness. It's all about a garden where there was nothing but good. And then Genesis chapter 3. The evil one invades. And the very first thing that he does is he challenges Eve's concept of good. And what he says to Eve is, has God really said that you can eat of all the trees of the garden? And he implies by that question, Eve, if God really were good, he wouldn't put any restrictions upon you. God is a scrooge. And you need to determine what is good for you independent from God. 
You see, there's an enemy that's after you. God doesn't want the best for you. God doesn't want to give you a good time. God wants to ruin your life. You see, if you're going to really find what's good for you, you need to turn away from God and you need to do what I tell you. Because if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then you're going to be really good. You're going to be just like God. You know what? Almost every single one of you are messed up about what you think is good. And so am I. Outside of Christ, our perception of goodness is wrong. We don't know what is good for us. And that's why the Apostle Paul is saying that a godly person must become someone who learns to love what is good. And what that means is that you allow Jesus to come into your life and you allow him to change your perception of what is good. All of you have an idea of what is good food. If we were to invite you over to our house today to eat a meal, and you came in, and I took what Mary had prepared, and I stuck in the microwave, and I heated up for about two and a half minutes, so it was blazing hot. You sat down at the table, and I stuck it in front of your face. And there I put in front of your face a steaming hot, vaporizing load of horse manure. What would you do? Now, I doubt that very few of you go, hmm, boy, I just, that, that, I've just been longing. I mean, I've been smelling it in my mind to be able to eat a whole plate full of horse manure. No, you guys would get up at the table and disgust. You would say, Wurtson, you know, Dave and Mary, I heard Mary was a good cook. What in the world is all this stuff? And you'd leave our house. You know why? Because you have a sense of what is good food. And horse manure is not good food. But you know what you do morally? Satan will load you with a whole plate full of horse manure. You're watching a movie. You're watching a movie, and the movie very subtly communicates that Genesis 2, that clothes with, therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and cling to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. God says that it's good for a woman and a man to keep their bodies pure, to not have sexual relationships before marriage, until the Lord causes them to make a holy commitment to one another, and then it is good for them in that marriage relationship to unite, and then it is good for them to be fruitful and multiply. But you'll be watching a movie that says, that's not it, that's not right. If you want to really be happy, you need to experiment, you need to try other partners, you need to be free in this area, because sex is a good thing that needs to be tried with a lot of people. And we can't expect young people to be, to be morally, singly devoted to one person. It's normal for them to enjoy the goodness of sex with a lot of different people. That's what your society says. Now, what I want you to realize is that's manure. It's horse manure. It'll destroy you. It produces disease. The statistics show it's all off. But there's a part of us that says that's right. I do enjoy that. I do like watching that. I'm turn, I, you know, it even turns me on. And what we need to realize, you see, what's wrong is our sense of goodness gets twisted around. And so we begin to eat manure, and it starts to destroy our body. And eventually, it just makes you really sick. In fact, you can get so used to horse manure that you don't know what a good meal is. And it has to do with your love of what is good. Do you really understand what is good? Now, I want you to start to evaluate. See, the, the, what the Christian life is, a lot of you think that the Christian life, the Christian life is a question of a bunch of do's and don'ts. It isn't. Paul said that in Christ, it's the end of the law. 
I have never had to tell my kids, kids, one of the major rules in our house is don't eat horse manure. I have to tell my dog that. My dog will eat just about anything. Have you ever watched dogs? Man, they'll eat anything that's down there. But I've never had to tell my kids, don't eat horse manure. You know why? Because they're people. They're human beings. And, and human beings don't like to eat horse manure. You know what the scripture is telling us? It says that you, the minute you believed in Christ, you became a child of God. You became a child of God. And as soon as you became a child of God, you became, there's a part of you that began to love what is good. And you don't need to have rules and regulations. Kids are always asking me, well, can we, can we, can we do this? Can we listen to that? You know, can we listen to that CD? The issue is, I'll tell you this, you can listen to any CD that you want. But you know what? If you are a lover of what is good, when you listen to a CD that starts to extol vicious, bloody violence, just like looking at a plate of horse manure, you go, Ugh! and you'll turn it off. You'll say, I don't want to listen to that. You'll be at a party, and the kids will start to do some things and automatically in your heart, there will be a revulsion to that. My wife Mary has been a tremendous partner to me along those lines. Because her mom and dad very skillfully bred into Mary out of a relationship with Christ. Not out of a performance, but out of a relationship with Christ. Mary has a great sense of what is good. See, there's a part of me that, that you know, I, I, I rent a video and I'm watching it. I say, man, let's take a break from this Bible stuff. All of you pull that on me. I know you do. And I have that in my own life, just to confess to you honestly. And I, so I'm watching, I go, you know, I, and I start making excuses. Well, I know that wasn't exactly right, but maybe this and maybe that. Now, the issue is not whether or not you can watch the video or not. The issue is how do you react to the video? What do you laugh at? What gets your sense of humor? And Mary is just awesome for me, the life partner, because Mary will often say, I just don't like this. It's it, it just not good for me. It's turning me inside out. And she'll turn it off, or she'll get up and walk away. And that comes the great motivation. As a spiritual leader in our home, I should be the one that does that. You see, I want you to realize as young people, as children, as adults, you have freedom. The Bible's not filled with a bunch of do's and don'ts, but I want to share something with you. If your love for the good is not a love for what God considers to be good, then you need to check about whether you're connected or not. Because if your love for the good is really not connected to the right things, then maybe you're not connected with the source of all good. That's the way the New Testament argues. Like I had a young man several years ago in counseling that, that went to Christian school and everything else, and he quoted John 3.16 backward. Man, I forgot the little word. Amen. And he told me, he said, man, I received Christ and I've been born again. I said, well, tell me what you like to do. Tell me what's good for you, what you really look forward to. And he started telling me what he liked. Told me the books that he liked. Told me the movies that he liked. Told me the music that he liked. And I just looked at him and said, you know what strikes me as really weird here? You're telling me that you believe in Christ, that, you, that you've trusted in Christ. But the stuff that you just talked about that you love, that you delight in, that you look forward to, is like, you love to listen to stuff that's really violent, that's destructive, that just, just makes a mockery out of dads and moms, that just makes, you know, just laughs at the leadership of a man in the home. How do you think Jesus feels about that? You love to listen to the songs that very subtly motivate you to have illicit relationships outside of marriage? You love to listen to songs that, that encourage you, that, that, that are just calling for just, just kind of a darkness. You love to listen to songs that speak about suicide. 
and death and, the, and, the, and just being enamored with death. What do you think your Savior thinks about that? He said, man, I never even thought about that. Who cares? Well, where do you think he stood with Christ? What do you think about the connection? See, that's where the scripture talks. You see, what the Bible says is that those that begin to really believe in Christ, a powerful thing happens, and they start to love what is good. And I want all of you to stop it, because the other side of the coin is as you get a delight for what is good, it'll be good for you. As you allow the Holy Spirit to change your sense of goodness to align with the goodness of God, you're going to find what's really good, because he is good, and he will tell you the truth. And that's one of the hardest decisions for us to make. Will I trust him to be the one that really explains to me the good? Now, when your loves and your delights are connected with God, you know what? You start to be upright. That's the second word. Paul says that a leader needs to not only be someone who loves what is good, but he also needs to be someone who's upright. Someone who's upright is someone that does right. Not deadly do right, but the one who is upright, who does what is right. When your love of your heart is connected right, it works out into the right actions in your life. Joseph, the stepfather of Jesus Christ, his human father, his adopted human father. When Joseph found out that Mary was pregnant, and at first, what did Joseph think? You've all heard the story. The terrible retching of Joseph's heart as he thought his partner was, Ill, was, was, was an immoral person. And it tore his heart apart. But it says this about Joseph and Matthew. It says he was an upright man and not willing to put her to a public disgrace. He was going to put her away quietly. It tells us that Joseph was an upright man and it uses the word that we have in 1 Timothy and Titus. Joseph, the stepfather of Jesus Christ on this earth, was a man who did right. He was a man that understood what was good and so he didn't want to spurn and to hurt his loved one, even though she had hurt him. He did what was right. He was upright. The third word the word is the word that is often misunderstood in our society. It's the word holy. Another word that describes our vertical relationship with God. The Apostle Paul says that spiritual leaders are those that are cultivating a sense of loving what is good. They act out what is right, what conforms to God's standard in their everyday life. And finally, you could say about their whole life, they're a holy person. Now, that's one of those words, especially when I talk with a teenage audience, it just cracks me up at the reaction that I get. If I ask about several hundred teenagers, what do you think when you think of holy? I mean, the last thing in the world any teenager wants to be in the United States of America is holy. Because what they think you're talking to them about is they think you're talking about wearing a long, feminine kind of a robe, you know, with frilly collars on it. You're, you're, you're a little cherub, about eight years of age, and you're singing in the Cambridge Boys Choir, the Vienna Boys Choir in a cathedral, and you're singing high soprano. Now, when I talk especially to a 13 or 14-year-old boy, the last thing in the world they want to be is to wear a long robe and sing high soprano in any choir, anywhere. So they don't want to be holy, because holy are those little cherubs and those little weirdos, the little weird people. That's not what the word holy word means. The word holy means to be set apart, which almost all of you would know. The literal meaning of the Hebrew word and then the Greek word that's used for holiness is a word that's meant to be set apart, especially for God. For example, you could use it of objects. In the Old Testament, you could say that this pot, this vessel, has been sanctified or made holy because it is to be used in the worship of God in the temple. 
You could call a building holy. You could say this, this temple is holy because it's been set apart for God to be used to worship him. It means to be uniquely set apart for God. You know what the New Testament is saying? The New Testament is saying that every one of you is holy based upon God's choice of you. If you become a member of God's family, if you've invited Jesus into your life, then you have become holy. You have become a distinctive one. And I want to share with you, you can't escape that. Just the very fact that you're here, the fact that you come to Awana, the fact that you come to Sunday school, the fact that you identify with believers means that you become one of those that people start to look upon you as a set-apart one. I want you, first of all, to make really sure that you have been set apart. You say, Dave, as I've been hearing you talk, you know, for example, there's no hunger in my heart. Let's be honest. Some of you as teenagers say, man, the only reason I come is because mom and dad make me come. And I want you to know as your pastor that I understand that. You see, I understand that my mom and dad dragged me to a lot of things that I wasn't interested in. My mom and dad made me go to things that I didn't love. And you see, what you find out, you see, as you, as you evaluate, what do I like to do? What do I respond to? You'll get an insight to what has your heart. And so if you're a young person, they say, well, be honest with you, you know, I, I really could care less about the Bible. And I could care less about praying. And I could care less about being with others that believe in the scripture. Then there's two things that are true of you. Number one, you've either never really come to know Christ as your savior. You've never dialed the right number and connected. Really. You're just a surface kind of a person. You just have the veneer of it. And that's very possible. And I want to challenge you. Don't play games like that. If the Lord is speaking to you this morning, don't let it pass by. If the Lord is saying, man, you need to make this real in your heart. You need to decide. Don't let the time go by because I've got news for you. The Holy Spirit won't keep talking to your heart forever. It's a very sacred thing for God to talk to your heart. And he's very patient and he's very kind. But he won't talk to you forever. If you pretend and you con him, there can come a time when he'll just let go and say, I'm not going to talk to you anymore. And only he knows that time. But I'm, I'm warning you, don't play with him. If his voice is tenderly speaking to you, I challenge you, decide. If you don't have a love for the good, if you're not acting right in your life, if you don't have a desire to be holy, then number one, it's possible you've never made the vertical connection, both young and old alike. Second of all, it could be that you're very sick. Because when we get sick... We're not strong, and we, and we begin to have weird things start to happen in our life. The same thing happens spiritually. When you begin to not listen to God's talking to you, and you stop really responding to him, then even as one of his children, you can begin to wander away. In fact, you can even look and act just like an unbeliever. In fact, they're some of the worst people of all because, because they're totally miserable, because they're not, they're, they are connected, but they forgot about it, and they're really not living it out in their everyday life. And those people become the bulldozers that are pushing people away. There's no reason for any of you to be like those two people, not connected or sick as a believer. Because the Lord is here today, and he's, and he's here a moment by moment in your life. He wants to connect with you. And from the depths of my heart, the reason I want you to connect is because he really is good. Over 45 years of being with him, he's really good. He's the one that has always been there for me. He always satisfied. He really is good. And I want all of you to become a magnet 
that draws people to the Savior. I'll close with this. I just got a letter from one of our radio listeners. She's over in Tennessee. This dear girl, when she was a teenager, she split, went off to Mexico and ran off with a guy, finally came back. Then she, got, she went home and went to live with her father, with, a, with an uncle down in Florida, came to know Christ, went back up to where she lived in the central United States, thought she could live for Christ, went totally away from Christ, just lived like the devil. And then she came back, and she was gloriously restored to the Lord. She married an engineer, and now she lives in Tennessee. And the Lord has taken her life and made her life like a magnet that draws people to the Savior. This past Christmas, every Christmas for the last several years, there's been a a Jewish little girl, about seven or eight years of age, that's come from the East Coast to visit her grandparents in Tennessee. And all of you that remember when you were seven and eight, visiting grandparents at seven and eight can be a real bummer. Can be. So this little seven, eight-year-old girl would leave her grandparents, not because she didn't love them, but because she wanted to play with some other little girls who were her age. And she came over to this Christian mom's house that was writing me this letter. And this girl began to talk to us about what started to happen. They, they would play, and the little girl would play with her girls. And one day she came in and said, do you know that I'm Jewish? This Christian mom said, yeah, I knew you were Jewish. And then this Christian mom said this, do you know that my very best friend is Jewish? And the little girl just lit up like a neon sign. He is. She said, you bet. My very best friend in all the world is Jewish. Little girl ran ran away and, and went out to play again and then went home to be with her grandparents again. It started to move towards Christmas. And this Christian mom decided, you know, like a lot of Christian moms will do, and a lot of every, every mom is going to make cookies at Christmas. So she decided she'd invite this little girl to come with several other girls from the neighborhood, and they would make Christmas cookies together and Hanukkah cookies together. Right in the middle of it, the little Jewish girl says, what's Christmas? The Christian mom says, I'll tell you what, when we get all done here, I'll tell you what Christmas is. Man, you know how it is when you're working with a bunch of kids. I mean, they had flour all over them. They had dough all over the, over the kitchen. And the mom told me she was totally exhausted when they all got done. And most of the girls left. This little seven-year-old girl, seven or eight-year-old girl, standing there. She's exhausted, the Christian mom. The little girl looks at her and says, now you're going to tell me about Christmas? And the Christian mom says, ah, oh, man, I'm so tired. But a little voice inside, she was connected vertically, like I've been talking to you today, connected vertically. People that are connected vert- vertically have have promptings from the Spirit about what's the right time and what is good and what needs to be a priority. And this Christian mom said, yeah. And she said, dear Lord, inside she said, dear Lord, I'm so exhausted. Just give me wisdom. And she gathered this little seven-year-old up in her lap, cuddled her in. And she said, and she began to tell her, you see, there was a Jewish promise in the Old Testament that started with the founder of your people called Father Abraham. And Father Abraham was promised that he would become a blessing to all the world. And he would become a blessing to all the world because from his people, from the Jewish people, there would come a great deliverer that would deliver man from his greatest problem. And that was the problem that was introduced in your Jewish scriptures in Genesis chapter 3. And then this people became a great people. You see, the grandson of Abraham was Jacob, and he produced a whole tribe of people, 12 sons. And they generated a whole people, which are your people, the Jewish people. And one day, one of those tribes, the tribe of Judah, generated a king, a king who was named David, probably your greatest Jewish king that ever lived. And he was the David who established the unified kingdom of Israel. 
But God made a promise to David one day. He made a promise that David would never fail to have a male heir upon his throne. The centuries went by. There were times when it looked like King David's throne would be lost and annihilated. In fact, at one time, it was hanging by just a slender thread of just one Davidic male heir. But he was protected. And then about 2,000 years ago, an angel came to a virgin girl, a Jewish girl, in a Jewish town called Nazareth. And the angel said, now's the time. Now's the time because God keeps his promises. And God sent his son into the womb of this virgin girl. And his name was called Emmanuel, God with us. The, Jewish, the, the Christian mom went on to explain to this little seven-year-old Jewish girl what happened to that Messiah and how he died on the cross and how the reason that he died on the cross is to fulfill the meaning of all those sacrifices in the Old Testament to cover sin once and for all. And then that Christian mom explained to that little Jewish girl that that precious anointed one from God rose again from the dead the third day, and he's alive. The Christian mom said, would you like to trust in the anointed one God's gift to you? And the little girl said, yes, I would. I would like to do that. And so there, just before Christmas, and as the celebration of Hanukkah took place, the little girl invited Jesus to be her Messiah. That's what I mean by being a magnet that draws people to the Savior. Are you a magnet today? Drawing people to the Savior? Or are you a bulldozer that's pushing people away? For more information on materials available through Truth Encounter, please write to us at Truth Encounter, Box 580, Midlothian, Texas, 76065, or you can contact us on the web at www.truthencounter.com. Our telephone number is one 888 668 7884